friends, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 338, and I had a conversation with Bill Bentley. Bill has been in the trenches of the music industry for decades. Writer, archivist, music historian, AR, and PR. He's been the senior VP of Warner Brothers and music editor of LA Weekly. He's also the co-founder of Water Brothers Films. Neil Young, Clapton, Lou Reed, Elvis Costello, they've all worked with him. Uh, We discussed his beginnings in Texas, going to see some of the greatest blues and R&B artists in history, and his brush brush with the law, and uh, his dedication for love and music of all genres and eras. It was such a wonderful conversation. He is a wealth of knowledge, for sure. He's seen so much. I really hope he writes a book someday about everything that he has experienced. Really enjoyed having him on. He'll definitely be on the show again because he's got a lot of stuff coming up, which he'll talk about as well. Check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. Please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. My most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also, check out my relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube at youtube.com slash are we there yet podcast show rate review and subscribe to hey human on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts it's super helpful and shows your support for the show and uh, that's about all the businessy stuff let's get into the episode thank you for listening be well stay safe be kind here we go bill bentley welcome to hey human Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for schlepping out here. I love Santa Monica. It's the best. Yeah. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I am from Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. I was born there in 1950. Uh, my parents were Houstonians, and I lived there for 20 years. Okay. Yeah. Did it shape you, the, the Texas of it all? Houston, <laughs> I tell you what, Houston was a wild place. Like when I was a kid, it just seemed like there were never any rules for anybody. I mean, at that point, I think it gotten to be the murder capital of the world. It was just kind of like the Wild West. And a part of it had a lot of money because the whole oil business is there. So you had all these oil people who made fortunes coming from like, you know, hillbilly backgrounds. So they wanted to put it into the art world. So we had like great art museums, great Rice University, great universities. But we also had a, a side of Houston that I fell into early, which was the black scene in black music. I mean, they were like, it was sort of the southern city to move to if you were from rural areas anywhere in Texas or Louisiana, because there was jobs there. You know, the Houston Ship Channel were there. So there was great jobs for uneducated people. So it had this monstrous sort of back and forth between all these art collectors and just down and out people. And it was it was fascinating. To what see year that. would this be? That was like about. I started running around Houston about 1956 or seven. I was young, but I learned how to use the bus system, so I could ride downtown. I could ride anywhere. And once I found where the blues guys were singing, usually on the streets, 
then I could go there, like 1960. Lightning Hopkins was on the street, Juke Boy Bonner, all these great singers were just, you know, that's where they sang on the streets and people gave them tips. You know, there wasn't like a big scene where they performed, it was just natural. It was magical. Was there any eyebrow raised at this white kid coming around to hear this great blues music? I will tell you this, the black people who lived in those environments were um, flattered that I sought them out. You know, because there wasn't much integration then. Very segregated. The schools were segregated. The buses were, you had to sit on the back if you were black. So it was really, really hardcore Southern segregation. So when I started coming around with my buddies, they were like, oh, you like this? I said, we love this. Well, come on back. Come on inside. Well, you know, 10 or 11, they were giving us beers. We were sold, man. <laughs> After that started happening, then I got to start going to the clubs. 12, 13, you know, James Brown and Otis Redding and all these soul singers and blues singers. It was like the most fascinating childhood you could have if you loved American music, which I did. Did your parents uh, okay this or did you sneak out? You know, out? they didn't really know, but my, my dad, he worked for a newspaper. He was a cartoonist and his newspaper back then, the Houston Post, where he worked for 40 years, was smack dab in the ghetto. That's how I discovered some of these streets. It was on a street called Dowling, and up the street from the Houston Post were five or six nightclubs, you know, that had people like Albert Collins and uh, Johnny Copeland and all these incredible guitar players, which you could hear. We could hear them when we go pick my dad up. So I'm going like, I'm coming back here. I didn't tell them where I went. Not usually. I usually kind of like fudged it a little. Sure. But I don't think they would have minded. I think they would have gone like, yeah, go ahead. They're very liberal people for Texas. You know, they supported Kennedy in 60. In fact, I went door to door for John Kennedy. And uh, I don't think people realize that Texas was liberal at one point. Very little of it was. But there were the, the, Demo the, the, the Democrats. Democrats. Well, Johnson was from Texas. Yeah. And while he wasn't liberal, the Texas uh, party had a huge basis there. I mean, they had liberal senators and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. But you know, on the surface, it looked very conservative because it was. But there was an undercurrent of liberalness that was just wonderful. Yeah. You know, I remember going to, uh, in 64, I went to the LBJ victory party. You know, he beat Goldwater that year. We were so happy. You know, we had our thing in a little, the Democrats in a little basement, and Goldwater had this beautiful ballroom in a fancy hotel. So we would go sneak over to the hotel and eat their food, and they come back to the Johnson basement. <laughs> you know, when we were kids, we were like into kind of subterfuge. Not sneaking around, but just not doing what everybody else. We weren't sports guys. I was not a sports guy. When I was born in Houston in 50, I had polio. So like automatically the sports was out for me. No sports. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't play. And the little I could play, nobody wanted me on their team. So I think that's why I went so far into music because I could dig music. And I think uh, once I got into that, you know, I had another world. Did you play? Well, I took up drums at 14, which was kind of a dumb instrument to play if you've only got one good arm. You know, in fact, I opened for a guy, uh, Archie Bell and the Drells once. Uh, they had a big hit in 66 called Tighten Up. And our little band, The Aggregation, opened. And the sax player came up to me and go like, man, why do you want to be doing the drum, man, with your droopy arm? You should be blowing horn. You can't play drums like that. And I go, well, it's kind of too late now. Because I tried to learn how to read music so I could play horn. Couldn't do it. You know, you really need to learn how to read music when you're young. You get a little older, your mind is just like math. It's like know? a language. You just can't do a language, yeah. yeah. Sure. So, you know, I got on drums, and I loved drums. I played in bands. I wasn't very good, but it didn't matter. You know, I, my whole thing about life is 
do what you want to do and don't worry about what anybody thinks. Sure. It's hard to live that way. And it took me a long time to <laughs> really live those words. But when I was young, I had no choice. Mm-hmm. I had to be who I was. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. Like Houston was a violent city, but even in high school, that was pretty rough. I had these guys who were like my bodyguards. They just like, no, 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 he's going to kick your ass. They're going to have to go through us to do it. Then we go places. See anybody here? You want us to kick their ass? I go like, no, no, no. I'm not like that. You don't have to. We don't have to look for trouble here. But it was, you know, it it was so much fun. Did you have braces and things on your arms and legs? When I was young, on my legs. But you know, this. No, I just had an arm that you know doesn't go anywhere. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I could type. That was my salvation in high school. I could. Learn, I learned how to type, and that's what led me into being a writer eventually. But typing was my savior too. So you- typing and music. Were you on school papers? Uh, no, my conduct was too bad. But I became a typesetter. Once I went to college, I needed to uh, had a little run-in with the Texas Rangers, and uh, I ended up on probation. I was in college, and I, you know, 68, I started smoking a little marijuana, and somebody in my dorm was in a little Texas town called Georgetown, just above Austin, and somebody in my dorm narked on me. So the Texas Rangers busted down my dorm room at three in the morning and arrested me for one joint. But it was a felony. So like, I got kicked out of college, I was a convicted felon, I had to go back to Texas, to Houston, wait for my trial. The, the lawyer said, get a, get a job. So when we go to trial, you know, enroll in night school and get a job and it looked good to the judge. So I got a job as a typesetter. And uh, that, that taught me how to write. Because when you're a typesetter, you're setting the type of other people's writing. So, you know, at a, one point I was like setting the type on a, a college newspaper for like all the columnists in the New York Times because they used it in their paper. And it was just fascinating. I mean, you start reading this stuff, you're like, wow, man, that's what writing's all about. If you want to learn to write, type the things you love and you will see how they wrote it. You can see how the sentences are constructed. Mm. It's like I always tell people, writing school should be partially about typing books. Find your book and just type it. And you will learn so much. Because you can't learn how to write. Nobody can tell you how to write. How do you learn writing? You can't. You're born with it. You can learn how to to get better at it. Yeah. And I also, besides what you're saying, which seems like a really great idea, because then your your body then starts to absorb the flow of words. The rhythm. Yeah. But also read your ass off. That's it. Read. That's it. That's and the read whole everything. thing. It's like music, you know. Li- if you really want to learn how to play music, listen to it. Yeah. Play along to it. You can take lessons. It teaches you the rudiments, but to find the inspiration you need to be a writer or a musician or whatever, you have to have that inner soul that wants to do it. You know, not because it's a job, because you love it. I always tell. I told my kids. I said, find something you like to do, and then you'll learn how to maybe make money from it but you'll have a great life mm. if you're doing what you want to do. Did you find yourself drawn to asking questions, interview style of the musicians you were seeing on the street? A little bit, you know. I was I was sort of very, uh, didn't want to be the nosy kid because there was a little sense of like, some of them were a little suspicious. Like Lightning Hopkins carried a Derringer in his boot. He was, you know, he'd been ripped off a lot. So he's like, well, what are you, what are you, what are you doing here? But once they got to know us, they loved us. Hmm. But all the people in those neighborhoods around it was just, it was like a party at their places. I can't even imagine how electric that time must Ah, have been. On the street in Houston, 
called, uh, what was it, in the Fifth Ward, Lions Avenue, was just a row of singers. And it was just the best. I feel like, you know, you would walk into a situation like that and you could actually feel the change coming over your body Completely. of the before and after of hearing music like that. It was psychedelic. It, it, it altered your brain. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. I could hear it from a block or two away. And I go like, oh man, you know, Juke Boy's on the street today. This is really going to be something. Because he would play a bass drum with his foot. And sometimes he would have, have a hi-hat for the other foot. So he was keeping like a small drum pattern going. Harmonica on the rack and then his guitar. He was like a one-man band. It's crazy to me. He was great. So, so that all took me into like the career I ended up in. I mean, just all that years and years and years of listening and seeing music live. If you love music, you've got to see it live. You've got to find what you love and go see it. No matter how old you are or, you know, if your parents have to take you, whatever it is, that's, that's how you really grow your love of it is watching people make it in person. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're taking in the music and it's making you weep oh. out of joy or pain, oh. then you know it's, it's never leaving you. It's never, you'll never be Ever, ever. I mean, I, I will never feel empty in life from all those years. And, and what I really learned from the blues the blues is there to make you feel better. People are always so sad. I said, you're not listening right. The blues is like, you know, lancing a wound. You get it out. And when you are not holding it all in, it becomes joyous and just really medicinal. It's spiritual. Totally spiritual. It's like gospel. Mm. It's sort of the street level gospel, except on instead of the God side, you know, you might have a little bit of devil in the blues. But that's not a bad thing. That's how I think you can tell music that's more like eating paste versus you know when someone's telling the truth oh yeah because you feel it in your own self mm -hmm. you feel empathy and connection and you're not alone and all that stuff that that the garbage music and you know I know there's a place for all that kind of music too you know that sort of throwaway for whatever it is but there's a huge difference that's right it, the, the real deep deep music and it can be any kind of music whatever but the stuff that really moves the human spirit, that's where it started. I think music was started to make people feel better when their lives were like eating dirt mm. back in the way, way old days, you know, beating on trees to make rhythms and stuff. That's where it all started. But they did it. The sharecroppers sang in the fields because it made them get through the day, helped them get through the day. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's about, you know, that's the bedrock of American music. Also, I imagine those voices coming up together as they sang, even if it was at great distance, that there was that feeling, I'm not alone in this. That's right. If you want to see somebody happy, find a singer, because that's just a voice. That's not an instrument. And if you, if you can watch a singer just sing, you go, that's so magical. There, there's, there's, there's no appendages to it. It's just the voice. You become a conduit, I believe. When yeah. I when I sing, that's how I feel. I feel like I'm a conduit. That yeah. I'm opening my mouth, but that it's coming from somewhere else. Hard to explain exactly, but that's what it feels like. That's what it is. You're, yeah. you're receiving feelings from another place, and they go through you and mm -hmm. come out your voice, or if you're using your hands to play or whatever, it kind of comes out of you. Yeah. I'm it's amazing. That's, that's just, I can never rant enough about music. <laughs> Where did your path take you then? You're in Texas till mm -hmm. 20, so then what? Well, I was in Texas. I became a uh, publicist 
for a music show on TV, Austin City Limits. And I was writing for a paper in Austin we started called The Austin Sun. And then it all kind of collapsed at the end of the 70s. I don't know what happened, but it wasn't me. It's just the paper was sold. The TV station got rid of everybody that worked there for some you know, reason over weird fundraising. Of course, we had nothing to do with that. <laughs> and I just got this call out of the blue from a guy in L.A. that said, I'm starting a paper. Do you want to move to L.A.? And I'd never been to L.A. I'm thinking like, L.A.? Why do I want to go to L.A.? I mean, that's Plastic City. But I looked around in my life and I go like, I think I'm done in Austin. So I went to L.A. and started working for the L.A. Weekly, which was a new newspaper, and did that a couple of years as a uh, music editor. But I'm not an editor, really. I'm a writer, so I, I kind of like wasn't a good editor. And then I got a call from a record label called Slash Records, small label. said, do you want to be our publicist? I said, yeah. So I started there. And from there, I jumped over to Warner Brothers Records, which is like the greatest place in the universe for record labels. I started there in 86, and it was still just, you know, the original people who'd started the label in the early 60s were still running it. You know, they started sort of as a Frank Sinatra label. He owned it. Reprise, and then it became... I didn't know that. Yeah, he started Reprise Records, hired a man named Mo Austin to run Reprise. They started Reprise, and then Warner Brothers bought Reprise, and so they all went to Warner Reprise, and they just grew that label. And yeah, that all started out because the Sinatra wanted a label where they couldn't tell him what to do. He'd been on <laughs> Capitol. He goes, like, I'm not going to record what you want me to. I'm going to record what I want to, and I'm going to start a label so nobody can tell me what to do. So the whole freedom of Warner Brothers Records, which is what it was known for, came from Frank Sinatra saying, huh. don't tell me what to do. I love I'm that. the singer. Yeah. You know, yeah. what are you telling me for? You're a controller. You're a, like, bean counter. Don't tell me what to do. And that was Warner's whole motto yeah. all those years. If you could only see what it's become. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I learned in, well, life really, everything changes. And if you can't roll with the changes, you're going to have a very unhappy life. When you started PR back then, obviously no computers, no internet, no, none of that. Beauty, stuff. life, <laughs> real life. Real life. You, you call people up on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was so blissful, man. You know, I used to call like 30, 40 people a day, talk to them about music. Because as a publicist, all you're doing is trying to get them to listen to your music that hopefully they'll like. So you were just having just endless phone calls about great music. And fortunately, I got lucky at Warner's and it seemed like the only bands I worked with were some of their best bands, which was like, whoa, because not every label has all great bands. You have to have, my boss used to say, you know, you got to have your money bands and your art bands. Money bands play for the art bands. And so, uh, yeah, I just talked about music. And then, you know, as, as the internet took over, everything became emails, and everything was short, and the people aren't writing complete sentences, and it just, you know, it changed a lot. I'm not gonna be a Luddite and go like, oh. Sure. It's just, like I said, everything changes, and you gotta roll with it. I just think about from a PR perspective, it's so interesting because back then, when there wasn't a 24-hour news cycle, and there wasn't, the, instant the, news. Instant news. The level of paparazzi. How everyone. The minutia that was unco that is uncovered now because we know so much about each other that the the most banal, asinine things become newsworthy because there are there is no mystery. Yeah. Everything and there's nothing left to surprise anyone with because it's all out there. Everything. I kind of knew the writing was on the wall about two thousand one. At Warner Brothers, most of the old guard had left. We had new people running the show. They're fine. 
but my boss in publicity bought all the publicists, you know, the instant cameras. So like, take pictures of everything. If you go backstage, take picture of the food and post it. And I go, what are you talking about? Like, you know, eight hour old tacos? Yeah, 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 show what's going on backstage. They're like, I, I knew, I knew. I said, well, this is not gonna end well. And it kind of became not all that, but everything now is out there. And, it, and it's all like half of it, you just is wasting time. But you, I'm not complaining. No, I know. <laughs> I get it. I get it. It's, you are known as the archivist of rock and roll. I think people, when they talk of you, they, they talk about the fact that you have an encyclopedic knowledge of music that has come before. Did that, you, yeah, that's kind of true. My brain, I always say like I'm, I'm a font of useless information. But, you know, I started listening to music. I mean, my first record I bought in 56 when I was six, Hound Dog by Elvis Presley. And I started watching music, like I said, all these years. And and it's not like I study it, but I just take it all in and, you know, filter out what I really love and keep. But and, and a lot of that just stays in my brain. And I don't want to be one of these guys who I can tell you the color of the record label from Roy Head's first hit in 56. I'm not that kind of knowledge. But the, the stuff that I love and the things I think are important in music. You know, the real things that shaped the future of music. I just, I just am fascinated by the history of it. And fortunately, I get to really study it. It's just for fun. But I, I go to the record store, Amoeba Records on Hollywood Boulevard, every Sunday morning. Because it's like going to the library for me. And I don't, sometimes I don't buy anything. I just look around, see what's happening, see the new records, see the old records. It's, it's like, it's studying. It's like going to school. But it's fun. Yeah, I never really liked school that much. Uh, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't. Either. I couldn't apply myself. I just didn't have that side of me. Mm -hmm. Different kind of brain. That's right. Yeah. Do you? It must be a kick to hear modern music and to hear the history within it. Oh yeah. When I write with younger writers, I I often say, you know, what are your favorite things? And then they'll say, and I say, okay, now go and look at who influenced them, and then go look at who influenced those folks, and just keep going backward. And see how far back you get. It's like giving them a gift. Like if somebody tells me, like I really love Eric Clapton, and said, "Well, you know, listen to BB King, but then listen to Freddie King, then listen to T Bone Walker, where the electric blues guitar really started in Texas in the late '40s," and go like, "That's like the history, and it's and it's very similar." When I used to work with some of those uh, British guitar players, singers, and I would tell them, they, they'd kind of like, well, what's your story? And I'd tell them the people I used to see, they go like, you saw these people? I said, yeah. They were around. They were in the clubs. And they would have died because they worshipped. I mean, they worshipped. When the Rolling Stones started, they worshipped Jimmy Reed. They worshipped Elmore James. They would have died to have seen them. And half of them didn't believe me. They said, well, how did you see that? I go like, you know, you walked down the street, man. Houston was a very good, you know, it was the black epicenter of the South. The bit, it was like the Chicago, but in the South. So all the music was there. And there was a couple of great record labels. And so it was almost like all that was just put at my feet if you were kind of offbeat enough to dig it. I'd take people there sometimes with me, and they were like, we got to leave. This is not happening. How come we... <laughs> you know, they get scared. They didn't, they didn't know that there was no real problems there. But, sure. you know, you're, you're kind of taught by your parents what to be afraid of. That's definitely true. And it's that's the shame. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, you have to be cognizant of what's going on in your surroundings, but you have to be afraid of it. Or if you are, just leave. You know, you can smell what's trouble. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I used to take people there, and they, 
couldn't handle it. And then when their parents found out where they were, they were not allowed to go back. <laughs> Segregated. It was just really hardcore. How did music change, in your opinion, when desegregation happened? You know, in 68, and, and I was still going to the black clubs after King was killed, it, it kind of put a knife in the heart of integration. Because a lot of the people, though they didn't know me, they felt like, well, if that's the way you're going to do our people, it's, it's over. And it, it really changed it for, for several years. It kind of, it took out sort of the amalgamation of the different styles and people that were digging it. Because by 68, you know, integration had started happening. So people were really going to see a lot of different kinds of music. And it slowed it down, but like anything, it comes back. But it didn't come back as wild. I will say this, the soul music in the blues of the 70s wasn't as uh, vibrant as it had been before that. But that's just how music goes. You know, it's wild, it, they tame it a little bit, then they tame it a lot, and something else has to start because by the time they tame it, it's boring. So that's what I noticed. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like an overt thing where people said, no, you're not welcome here anymore. But, you know, you can feel when you're welcome. Sure. And it just, it really was a terrible period. And then Bobby Kennedy, I mean, the whole thing was just 68 was so hard on the heart. Do you remember where you were when... Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, I was uh, at my friend Galen's house in Houston. We were seniors in high school. And then I was at Galen's. Galen had this house. His father was a doctor who didn't really practice. He was a very strange guy. But uh, Galen had a house where we set up a radio station in the living room just to broadcast in the trees and stuff. So we just spent all our time there, like playing records and watching TV. And, you know, you're a senior in high school. You just want to drink and, you know. His dad was a doctor, so sometimes we got a hold of some of his stuff. <laughs> but uh, he's still living in that house, too. But it was just, yeah, I remember, it was. It, it just felt like the worst time of my life. Because, you know, when John Kennedy was killed, it, it hurt a lot because I was very close to what he believed in, even though I was only 13. But you're 13. When you're 18 and you're watching what's going on, you know, the Vietnam thing is out of control, and you just kind of knew things were running off the rail. You could feel it. You could really, really feel it. In fact, it got so bad in 72 when I was at the University of Texas, I took Hindi because I was going to move to India. You know, Nixon was president. I'm like, this is awful. This is everything I was always against. Because Nixon was dark. There's something dark about what was going on. So I took Hindi. I was going to go to India. Then by the time I finished the course in 73, the Watergate thing kind of came out and then I go like well maybe I don't have to move to India after all <laughs> did you not get a draft card you know you're in college oh right of course I had two exemptions I was in fact uh, polio knocked me out and then the felony the pot felony knocked me out so one time I told the guy that was going to get drafted I said well let me let me uh, take your physical for you I'll just you know I'll just tell him I'm you because we didn't have driver's license there's no photo ID so I just gave him all the info told him I was him failed his physical which was me taking it and he got like a 4F, I think it was called, or whatever the worst one was. But you know, that was Vietnam. We didn't want to go to Vietnam. And guess what? We were right about that one. Absolutely. That was a war that did not need to happen. And I, I could argue that for almost every war. Yeah. Probably, where but, we're not literally saving people that are the under... I mean, let's be honest. War is not about what we're told money. it is. It's all about money. It's, about it's an money. economics problem. Yep. 
And so we were like, I had buddies die, my friends who did go, yeah. uh, came back and were just totally transformed into almost zombies. It did something really terrible to them because I think when they were there, they knew it was wrong. And so they're just like killing kids, killing women, you know, burning down villages. I go, like, and they never recovered. But I knew that was a bad war. But 68, yeah, I was ready to leave the country because I thought like it just was. Been, but luckily I didn't because I think I don't think I would have fulfilled my life like I have in India. But you never know. I might have walked in here in a robe. <laughs> well, the music of India is quite beautiful. Oh, God. And we got all yeah, those interesting music. tones and everything. Hat, you know, middle middle tones in between notes and oh, things. It's fascinating. The Western scale is pretty dull. It is kind of. I mean, that's you know, <laughs> blues is elemental, which is one reason I like it. But it's not like built on all that. Mm. But then you get into jazz and everything starts changing. That's true. Yeah, I love jazz too. I wish I could have played that, but I just didn't have the uh, talent for that mm. musical talent. But, My yeah. best friend Ellen loves jazz. Oh. And I like old school jazz. I I can't quite hip to the where it sounds like five different songs are being played at the same time. Right. Never gotten into that. It's too much on my brain pan. Uh, but I like old stuff. Listening to like the records that Blue Note and Prestige were making in the fifties with people like Red Garland and Hank Mobley and all these players, I just I'm still fascinated by it. It's sort of like it's perfect. My yeah. son when he was little I played him we used to play the jazz station in our car when we were driving places he says you know dad jazz works like it just makes him feel good mm-hmm. and you don't even have to think about it and i felt like you know he's like eight years old but he felt it you know he felt it yeah i mean i have this memory of going down to my parents uh, rec room in the basement and you know i had an old fisher price record player yeah you know when i was a little kid like so many little kids and i was digging through their record collection and one stood out to me, and it was, it had a green spine that was a cool color, so I thought that was interesting. And then on the cover was this woman in shadow, and she was, her head was tilted up, upward. Oh. And I thought, I wonder what this is. And I took it up to my Fisher Price, and I put it on, and I was very, very young. I'm probably around that same age, around eight-ish or mm-hmm. seven-ish. And I put it on, and it was... Billy Holiday. Oh my goodness. And I can still feel the feeling in my body right now. And I, I was on the floor of my room listening to this and just weeping. And to the, I still have the record to this day. I never, I was like, this is mine now forever and ever. Oh, you never forget those kind of like really life changing experiences. It's so visceral. Oh, if you can, if music does that to you, you'll always have a friend. Mm. You know, because it's like, I love books, I love a lot of stuff, but music, I can just put it on and it's so enveloping mm. it, it just involves all the senses you don't have to really think it just it just becomes this thought process that's beyond words it's yeah. just feeling pure feelings where do we move to now from being the PR person and then starting to use your skills as a as the encyclopedic knowledge of no, music person that's, that's interesting because all the time I was at Warner's which was from from 86 to 06 I was writing for newspapers and magazines and stuff. And then when I left Warner's, uh, I went to work for Neil Young. But Neil doesn't do a lot of publicity. So it was sort of like I had a lot of other time on my hands. So I started writing short stories and uh, never got those published. But then finally somebody came along to me from the Smithsonian and said, do you want to write a book about rock and roll based on 
unseen pictures, which was great because I'm not a researcher. I just I can't do all the deep research you do when you write a history. So this was almost like a visceral uh, memoir of all the great bands I'd seen mm -hmm. over the years, and it was for the Smithsonian. And then I started uh, during that period. Before then, I started making tribute records for artists I loved that were sort of unknown. More what do you less. mean by that? Making that means like, let's say a great artist like Rocky Erickson I loved, I would get 10 or 15 people to each record one of Rocky's songs. So we did that for Rocky twice. <laughs> did it once for a, uh, a great lost singer named Skip Spence and once for a Texas musician I love named Doug Somm. And I'm now in the process of doing one, a little more known, but for Lou Reed. So I'm getting like 12, 15 people to each do a Lou Reed song. Because I just think you know, lose songs are out there, but hearing other people re record them and, and sort of make them their own, hopefully. Mm -hmm. That's in, and believe it or not, that not that many people have recorded Lou songs because he's so individualistic, it's hard to do it. Mm -hmm. Like, right now I'm dealing with somebody that wants to do Walk on the Wild Side. And I go like, how do you do that? I mean, Lou did it. Can you ever do anything that equals it? But uh, she's got an idea. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I love making tribute records. You were friends with him, correct? Yeah, I worked with him. Uh, let's see, I've been a fan since the 60s in the Velvet Underground. And then in Austin in the 70s, sort of happenstance, I met the guitar player in the Velvet Underground who had moved to Austin to get his PhD. And he and I were in a band together. And then when I met Lou in 88, he came to Warner's with his first Warner record in New York. And I became, became his publicist at Warner Brothers. And you know, over the years, we just got to be friends. He was, he was probably one of the greatest artists I ever met. Because if you think about his music, totally his own. Mm. He didn't listen to other people. When other people told him he couldn't do things, he's, he always used to tell me, never let anybody tell you what you can't do. And he just always just plowed ahead on his, in his own way. Just an incredible artist. I learned so much from him. Right up to when he died in 2013, we stayed close. He left Warner's in... 04, I left in 06, so we worked outside of Warner Brothers too. Whenever an artist like that passes away, it, it, you definitely feel, a, as they would say, a ripple in the force. Something, you know, it's you can feel them going back from whence they came, but it's the loss that is left and behind. And they're still here. Yeah, well, of course, they're immortal, right? Yeah, they're still here. Yeah. I remember the day Lou died. I knew he'd been sick. He'd gotten a new liver. So I thought he was doing better. But I remember the morning I woke up. It was a Sunday morning. And the radio station was playing the first Velvet single Sunday morning. And I just went, he's gone. I could feel it. But then I realized, oh, you know, he's here. You know, spirits stay mm. if you're open to feeling them. I don't really think I can see them. Some people can, but I just feel them. You ever dream about him? Yeah. 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 He, I think that's was, how they visit. <laughs> you know what's interesting about Lou Reed? He was almost completely different at his core than what people thought about him. How so? Yeah, they thought he was angry. They thought he was sort of uh, negative. But he wasn't. He just was the kind of guy that wanted things like he wanted it with his music, the sound, the songs, the freedom to, to sing whatever he wanted. And uh, he stood up for it. Hmm. He stood up for it. He told me once... We had a meeting with the Warner, new Warner president. Lou was like, I want to see what they're going to do with me now that this new guy's here. So we had this meeting. It did not go well. And uh, we were walking back 
to my office at Warner Brothers and he said, you know, because he had a record and he knew they weren't going to promote it right. He said, you know, Billy, when one of your record fails, it's like watching someone murder one of your children. They're like, whoa, see, that's, and I could see what he meant. You know, he put his heart and soul into these records and then you give them to the label and they're like, eh, you know, next. And it, it just, it kind of broke his heart in a way. But it didn't stop him. He just kept doing it. Because he'd started out in a band that nobody wanted to hear, the Velvet Underground. They wouldn't let him play in New York half the time. They wouldn't play him on the radio when they made a record. He was used to all that. He was like, the, he was like a guy that read books in college and went like, well, if you could write about these things in books, you know, homosexuality, sadomasochism, drug addiction, why can't you write about it in rock songs? Because nobody was. He said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write about things I want to write about. And he always did, <laughs> right to the end. Yeah, wow. I'm sorry for the loss of Yeah, time. well, he's still around. And this tribute record I'm making is going to be really good. That's great. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, like, really good. And it'll likely introduce a whole new level, you know, a whole new group of people to his music, which is always That's why I do them. Bonus, right? That's why I do them, because sometimes, you know, like Rocky Erickson was a singer I loved in the 60s. He was in a band in Houston called the 13 Four Elevators. So I made a tribute record and got people like ZZ Top and R.E.M. and all these people to do his songs. And all these kids were like, whoa, who was this guy? I said, well, check it out. You know, go listen to his originals and you will really hear what it's all about. But those tribute records, they don't sell, but they change what people, some people think about an artist mm -hmm. as they learn about it. Because if you don't know about them, you don't know about them. I mean, how would you know? Yeah. So it's, they're fun. Again, you know, they're sort of like, not useless, but it's just for the hardcore. Well, and they put a ripple through time. Yeah, that's it. And they'll be there forever. Mm -hmm. You know, every once in a while I hear uh, one of the songs from the tribute records on the radio. I go like, oh my God, that's great. <laughs> I go like, what's that? And I go like, wow, that's on the tribute record. Like college radio is pretty good. Yeah. Although that's even starting to lose its... It's hard. I mean, the stations here, I won't name them, but the ones that used to really be kind of experimental, I, I just, I listen to them and I don't hear much experimental. Mm -mm. But that's okay. That changes too. It'll all come back around, I hope. Yeah, radio, there was a time, listeners, <laughs> when you could listen to the radio and hear 20 different genres within the hour. That's uh, right. From 20 different types of artists, men and women. That's right. <laughs> Uh, and it just it doesn't happen anymore. They just no. do a ten-song loop. We know there's so much research done and focus because it's about fundraising for a lot of the college stations, and they know what their audience or they think they know what their audience wants to hear. So they have to play that, or they will lose their audience. This is my biggest frustration with all things commercial. I get I get the mighty buck. I yep. understand it. However, when you don't allow people to rise to an occasion whether that in literature or music or or whatever it is politics even whatever it is you just give them the the lowest common denominator or the paste and don't allow them to grow into something what a loss what a loss that is that's like cheating people it really is out of salvation yeah because this stuff saves people i'm convinced art saves people from you know as dr john used to call it the meat world just like day to day, go yeah. to work, get your hamburger. But art is sort of the payoff for being alive. And if we don't continue to let arts be free, like in the, the, how they express themselves, any whatever the art form is, life's gonna get narrower. 
you know, and that's no fun. Yeah. The good news is I think that as that happens, that dissidents can't help but explode. And that's right. And so that's when you get the incredible work of That's art. where rock and roll came from. Yeah. You know, people are listening to all and the stuff. And they go like, and philosophy. Yeah, we got to like that. tear down this wall because this is no fun at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people want to have fun. Yeah. And when you hear music or great, like you go to see great movies, you have, it changes who you are. Well, they want to be heard. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. People, people want to share a higher world. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to talk in those terms sometimes, but at the end of the day, we have to because that's the ramp up. I always find that such an irony with the you know, ecstasy of religion that then kiboshes the things that would bring you ecstasy. That's right. I mean, I was raised Catholic. I know what it <laughs> means not to have fun. <laughs> Everything you do is wrong. Blew that off. <laughs> I used to lie in confession. That's pathetic. What did you lie about? I just made up stupid, idiot, small things. <laughs> I coveted my neighbor's <laughs> wife twice. <laughs> so, like, I burned down a porta can. <laughs> when did you start working with Neil Young? Uh, well, at Warner's there in the, uh, let's see, that would have been the late 80s, I became his publicist at Warner Brothers. By then, he'd already put out 20 odd records uh, or something, a, right? A day. He's super prolific. And then when I left in 06, he was funny, his, his manager, this great man named Elliot Roberts, who I'm now making a documentary about, uh, he called me up the day I was leaving Warner and said, Bill, what are you doing? I said, well, today's my last day. He said, you want to come work for us, me and Neil? I said, well, what would I do? He goes like, nah, we'll find something. So Neil is always doing these different projects, you know, the Linkvolt electric car or Pono or whatever he's working on. and. I just worked for Neil for like seven or eight years in their office. And then I went back to a record label because I missed it. I missed the record labels. I really did. But uh, so Neil started a online newspaper called the Times Contrarian. He's got a monstrous website, neilyoung.com, and he's got a newspaper he edits on there, and I write for it and, do, right. and do things like that. Because you know what? You find a person like that, that's just interested in everything and has a boatload of energy, you just jump in and hold on. Yeah, he always struck me as a very fascinating human being. Totally. From Canada. I know, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's some great Canadians, Joni Mitchell. Oh. So many great Canadians. Absolutely. They, were, they had more freedom. To, to be individuals, I think, that we did. They They're also much more supported. The radio is much more supportive. Yeah. The government is supportive of the arts. Yeah. You know, they give grants to touring musicians. They, being an artist there is a good thing. I grew and, up in Seattle. I was so close to being oh, a Canadian. Oh, Vancouver. Things would have been so to... different. <laughs> what, so, yeah, working with Neil is like every day like a study in how to apply freedom to how you live and think. Within realms, because he's, he's a very serious man about the world and how he lives, but he's also always thinking about things that you go, the manager used to go like, uh-oh, I had a call from Neil. I said, well, what did he say? Like, I've got an idea. And he goes like, something's coming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, never a dull... Never, ever, ever, to this moment. day. <laughs> he's got a new record coming out Friday. <laughs> Yeah, the, the website that he has that I checked out, uh, there's a lot going on. Oh, and he, that's all him. 
Yeah. He's the editor and the and the sort of the builder of that website. It's it's almost like the looking at the website is sort of like the uh, the meme that you see of the person staring at the wall with the red strings going yeah. in every direction. <laughs> it's like that mind is going a bazillion miles an hour. You can just tell. It makes you want to take a nap. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot for sure. So you have all these projects coming, mm-hmm. and. Uh, long run runway still of all Mm -hmm. the things you want to do Mm -hmm. what haven't you done that you'd like to do you know what i'd really like to do is to write a novel oh but you know you sit down yeah you sit down to write a novel and it's almost overwhelming because like when you're writing about an artist or a type of music or something you kind of have like a railroad track you're on but with a novel it's blank pages or screens now and you start but I don't quite see the long-range story I'm trying to tell. So hopefully, you know, I'm trying to think of a way to sort of pinpoint the story enough to get started where I might want to go. But uh, we'll see. We'll see if I make it. And I really want to make, I tell you, I want to make this movie about Elliot Roberts, Neil's manager, who started with Neil in 1967. Never had a contract. I said, no contracts, Elliot? Because people tear up contracts. He told me a funny story once. He'd taken over management of Buffalo Springfield, which was Neil's band at the time. And they had a band meeting, and Neil said to Elliot, you're fired. Get out. So Elliot leaves the room, goes home. The next day at 8 a.m., on Elliot's front door, he looks through the curtain, and it's Neil Young standing on the front porch. He said, Neil, you fired me. He goes like, well... I just quit the band. You want to manage me? Oh, so <laughs> and they were together ever since. Sneaky. By then, he kind of helped Joni Mitchell get started. Oh, yeah. In 66. I love Joni Mitchell. So, uh, you know, he just had this fascinating life. And uh, he invented himself. His real name was Elliot Rabinowitz. But he said, I have to be somebody else when I'm a manager. So I'm Elliot Roberts. And he just, you know, just sitting outside his door listening to him talk for several years. I just go like... This is, a, this is a man who changed the record business. He gave the power to the artist, took it away from the record labels, and made the artist the one calling the shots. Does Neil have his masters, own all his masters? Yeah. Just like Bruce? Yeah. And, uh, but Neil did an interesting thing when he sold his publishing recently. He only sold half the ownership, so he controls the other half. He gets to say no to things. Smart. When the other people making these Boku bucks, they're all like, you take it, whatever you want. So, yeah, Neil, Neil's not going to let his stuff be used for things he doesn't believe in. Mm-hmm. And that's, but that's the kind of guy he is. I mean, he turned a 59 Lincoln into an electric car. But they're so expensive, you can't make them. <laughs> I love that. Though. Bless his heart. Just, uh, just, I mean, a, just a total inspiration. Yeah. A little eccentric. Yeah. Uh, Thank dreamer. God. Yeah. It's like but the people that invented rock and roll. This they, is what we need, though. We need it. we got to start thinking beyond just, you know, the box that well, we're living in. Back in the day, the billionaires and millionaires of the world, they used to do things like create art museums and, yeah. and music scholarships and, and need places for people to go to expand themselves. Yeah. And now it seems that those types of folks are more self well, Center, it's all based in other things in a way, but there's power. There's, yeah, power. I think uh, what do they say? Power is a corrupter. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely, power corrupts. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. But yeah. I feel very. Uh, you know, at seventy-two, 
I feel very positive because mm-hmm. guess what? You have to. What's the, what's the other side? But I really think just recently, I think there's a way where people are going like, you know, we got to like really start thinking about this thing because mm-hmm. you know, breathing is necessary. Mm-hmm. Water is necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, well, you there's know, no it's, SPF it's not 4, a fur coat. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we have to like hopefully get to a place to where everybody realizes like, you know, we really, really, really have to do something different. And we need each other. We have to. Yeah. That's all we have. You know, I can walk around all day by myself and have fun, just, you know, coughing visuals, looking at stuff. But at the end of the day, it's friendships, really, and Mm -hmm. connections to other humans, because they can talk. (laughs) (laughs) A bus business can't talk. Will you share a story, uh, a fun music story from your youth that is a... An example of the shenanigans that you got into? Oh my gosh. Because I know you got some. Yeah, let, let, me, let me tell a funny story. Once I was uh, going to see Otis Redding, and I didn't lie to my parents. I was 16, but it was a school night, and they said, uh, you know, Bill, you have to be home by 11. So Otis didn't even go on till like 10.30. So in, in the old days back then, you know, you had a wooden phone booth. So I got in the phone booth and uh, called my mom and said, hey, mom, I gotta, I'm going to be late. I said, Bill, tomorrow's school. You have to be home. No, 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 no. He might want me to play drums with him. And she's like, really? I go, like, yeah, maybe. We'll see. But he said, maybe. I talked to his manager and he said, Otis might let you. Because, you know, it's kind of like, Otis is like, who's this little guy? Uh, none of that happened. But I got to stay till like 2 in the morning. But can you imagine walking out on Otis Redding right when he's getting started? I mean, within a year, he's dead. year and a half. I would have missed all that. Mm. But And that happened to me a lot with just real sort of accidental just dates with greatness. I remember once I was at my college in uh, Southwestern in Georgetown, which I had no friends there. It was a frat school, and I wasn't. But I got friends with the cook. And he said, you want to come with us up to uh, Taylor? We're going to see a band tonight. So we go over there and out in the middle of nowhere in a field with this little club. I'll never forget, it's called the Lost Acres. Walk in, Freddie King on guitar. You know, like the great blues guitar player of all of them that people worshipped. And just seeing him like in a road, not even a roadhouse, a field playing guitar. Nobody ever believes me. I said, yeah, that was 68. He hadn't been discovered yet by the white people. You know, BB was getting bigger, but nobody knew about Freddie. But it just like that's the kind of thing that changed your life. Hmm. And I have hundreds of those things. Somebody needs to write that book. Maybe about I should you. write that book instead of later for the novel. <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> we'll see. You just do little to. essays about every single every, one. Of, like all of them. People would love that. My favorite hundred moments. Yeah, there that's you go. Idea. That's an idea. All right. I yeah, think you're on it. Okay, yeah, now you I'll be home. back when it's out. You got to have me back on the show. You, got, you have homework. <laughs> deal. It's a deal. Okay. Absolutely. Good. <laughs> Absolutely. Good. You worked with uh, Elvis Costello too. Yeah. I love Elvis. Yeah. Costello. I met him. I've seen him in before. A before he was on the label, I met him just through friends, and he—he's just a music fanatic. Of everybody I've ever met, you know, in the top two or three of just music, music, him. He used to send me cassettes. He called the guessing game of like 40 songs on these 90-minute cassettes. And I thought I knew soul music. There's, there were bands on there I'd never heard of. And I see him still. He's still like the same groovy guy, just music. That's his thing. Yeah. 
I he got, never tried to branch out into much. You know, he never really got into movies or, you know, he did. He just likes to make music. Mm-hmm. I got invited to to something and where he was playing the after party. And there weren't very many of us, so wow. I was just right there watching. Where was that? Uh, it was in Nashville. Okay. Yeah, it was for uh, Cowboy Jack. Oh, yeah. It was a Jack Clements. Mm-hmm. It was a tribute for him. He loved him. Yeah, so the after party he played, and whew, man, <laughs> that was something. <laughs> His manager told me a funny story. This great guy, still alive now. He lives uh, partially in Austin, but from England. Jake Riviera started Stiff Records. And he said on the first Elvis tour, when they were first touring America in their bus, you know, they were trying to make a name for themselves and they were doing interviews. And before they would let the writer come on the bus to interview Elvis, he made the band hide all the country western tapes, which is what they listened to. Because everybody thought, you know, he's like a punker or a new wave guy or whatever. So he didn't want them to know what he really loved was George Jones and all these people. So they would have to hide the cassettes so when the writers came on, they didn't see him and go like, what's this? That's hilarious. Yeah, that was funny. Wow. I kid Elvis about that. Now you see, he's still got those George Jones tapes. <laughs> well, I mean, that's such great. Oh. Uh, as, as they say, it's all music. Uh, it's you a know? snapshot of of America. It's you know, in some cases, the true history of yeah. this country. That, yeah. From that perspective, but kind of underneath the radar. Between the blues and that real dust bully type, you know, got three type stuff. It's, you've it's where got, it started. You've got the story of this country. That's right. You know? It's really where it started. I love the fact that, you know, they had these museums. I'm, I'm hoping someday. I gave it a shot about 20 years ago. I just didn't have the push, but. We'll, we'll start a real Texas music museum because mm. Texas has so many different they were great at such a wide variety of, of styles and uh, I just think there's a monstrous story that should be told about Texas music yeah so, that's uh, not to discount the indigenous music of course that's right it's also telling it's oh yeah all of it yeah I absolutely. mean the, the Germans brought the accordion then the, the uh, Mexicans started playing accordion and started conjunto all that stuff bleeds back and forth yeah. All of it. I love seeing all those connections. Oh, tell me why music is great. Yeah. We want to believe, like, oh, nope, that's just me. It's like, no, there's a whole swath of oh, existence where it's the endless. strings overlap. That's right. It's sort of endless when you really get down deep into it. And you just, and you're, I'm always discovering people I'd never heard of. Absolutely. You know, I'll go look through the African section at Amoeba and just all these like 10 string guitar players and stuff it's just you just go like oh my god i would love to come with you one day if, oh my god if it's not too at church where you have to be by yourself no, no, i'd love I to can come do along both. yeah I, can do both. I think that would be really fascinating to, to follow behind you and listen to the stories of maybe stuff. i should give, give guided tours of amoeba you that would be great they should hire me at amoeba they amoeba. Should. i'm the sunday greeter i mean why not people tell me but you can get a job as a walmart greeter i'd rather be an amoeba greeter. yeah you should be in a music store for sure uh, tell people how they might find you uh, I'm online, and you can find me, uh, you can write to me, well, just BillBentley14 at Gmail. How's okay, that? great. Yeah. You I don't really website? have a website no. website. Okay. I do Neil's site, but that's yeah. kind of, like, takes a while. Yeah. I'll put links to that site, though, too, Yeah, yeah. Well. NeilYoung.com. Yeah. I write at uh, Americana Highway. AmericanaHighways.org. Is uh, Bentley's Bandstand. Okay, yeah. I'm fine. I'm pretty fine. I'm not trying to hide too hard. Yeah. Well, you got now. You have two books you have to yeah. write. So you're I served be busy. probation. I got off probation. I'm I'm street legal. <laughs> Are now. you still smoking the weed? No, you know. I tell you, going to jail kind of like changed my mind. How long were you in jail for? I was only in jail like three days, but it was rough. I you bet know? you met some interesting characters. Yeah, I was like, you know, everybody in there just killed somebody. It was not. Oh I was lord! Like a little college freshmen, very you know, little that weird jail built in 1850. 
in Williamson County. It scared the hell out of me. So we switched to LSD because once you took it, you didn't have anything on you. <laughs> Amen to that. I've done plenty of that in my day. Thank you so much for being on the Thank show. Thank you for having me. This is wow. a delight. Well, Thank you so when much. When my book comes out, have me back. I 100% will do that. Or maybe when the Lou Reed record comes out. Absolutely. What year. It, well, I'm trying to. Lou died on October 27th. 2013. And so 10 years later, 2023 next year. Okay. It might not make it because I'm not going to put it out till it's Ready. just right. Sure, I get that. You know, there's a few people that I'm having to chase about it doing a song but I'm on the case okay I go like it's Lou Reed I you're know. not gonna get another chance oh you know you're not gonna get another chance that's gonna be incredible that's it you thanks it. thanks for listening everybody bye thank you adios <laughs>